Hello and welcome to Diminishing Returns. No, you're, uh, doing, you it wrong. you're doing it wrong, Alan. Uh, what? You say you got to start by going. <laughs> Thanks for listening to today's show. It should be in black and white. Join us next week when we'll be <laughs> picking up uh, Christopher Nolan's season with the Prestige. Yeah, it's very. And then good. next week well, you should do a completely different <laughs> film. That's the twist. oh dear Uh, yeah so um, as that very clever and funny satire will have told you uh, this week is uh, the first part of a trilogy in which we look at the entire filmography of Christopher Nolan Ooh, I'm Alan with me as always is Sol hello and joining us this week to look at the first four films of Christopher Nolan is Paul Breer hello Hello, Bria's been on the show before. Looked at Fight Club with us, didn't you? Yeah, I did. And that's a lot of Kevin Smith. Oh, yes. And this is another set of films for um, men. (laughs) 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 Entirely aimed at a male demographic. Yeah, so just to summarise immediately, we will be looking at Following, a very low-budget little film that Christopher Nolan made to start his career. The breakout indie hit Memento. The... We're testing if you've got it, what it takes to be a proper studio director, Insomnia, and then the beginning of uh, the Dark Knight trilogy, Batman Begins. That's what we're looking at this week in chronological order. But but do you remember, Alan, I, I remember way back when, I remember we had a conversation about Chris Nolan where I was reading that he doesn't believe in shot lists because it's all up here in his head. Yeah, but that's a fucking delight to work with. Wally <laughs> exactly. Fister loves that. <laughs> that's why he only ever works with Wally Fister. No one else will, <laughs> will do it. <laughs> yeah, God. I see. The thing is, okay. Let's uh, let's do a bit of overview, of Christopher Nolan, then, just to get us into this. Obviously, a very competent director in terms of what he's producing, and I feel like he's got a a bit of a reputation as making kind of intellectual films. Yeah, films that you have to films you have to, to get, yeah whether it's true or not. Yeah, as but. as far as the mainstream goes, you know, he's no Ingmar Bergman, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, within the obviously within the relative context of Hollywood cinema, and I think you know that's true to an extent. I think you, you're getting something a little bit more than just a well, he's not making Transformers action is he? nonsense or yeah, yeah, exactly. I, but does that make him a good writer or a good director or a bit of both? <laughs> good storyteller. I think he's a. I think he's an extremely. I mean, I'll just say it now. I think he's a phenomenal filmmaker. Mm. Um, and I would say that largely comes more down to direction than writing. But you know, that's not to dismiss his writing out of hand. I, I, he does. I, he does write, or at least do this ending screenplay of most of the things that he directs, doesn't he? He's certainly involved in the writing process of pretty much everything he does. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, he gets his hands on it, yeah. I mean, uh, we'll talk about this later, but just speaking in terms of that, um, obviously Insomnia, which we'll be looking at today, was a remake of another film, and although he's not credited as a writer, he did, like I say, he did his kind of pass on it. And so uh, I've watched the original Insomnia as well, so we can talk a little bit later about what did Christopher Nolan bring to that story that wasn't there originally. Fucking nerd. You see, yeah. I I was so annoyed at <laughs> the prospect of having to re-watch all of these films because I just wasn't in the mood. <laughs> Not that I dislike them, I just wasn't in the mood. I thought I'd find a kind of 
way to subvert it in one way or another. So you've already ruined that for me, Alan, because I, I didn't rewatch Christopher Nolan's Insomnia. I just watched the original uh, <laughs> Swedish <laughs> film that I, I haven't I hadn't seen before. But oh well, I hadn't seen that before either. That's good. We can discuss that. Um, yeah. I also read the short story by Jonathan Nolan. Oh, I was just about to say that I read the short story stuff. instead. <laughs> <laughs> you see, I'm oh, beating you all. <laughs> Get a job. This is good. <laughs> <laughs> That's good, though. We'll discuss all that later. I, I didn't actually read the short story. I was just going to say that I had. <laughs> <laughs> right, so basically, we're going to start with following... Now, as far as I can tell, Christopher... I, I, I read a little bit about this. Christopher Nolan didn't go to film school. Um, he just sort of... Did he not? Learned, no, I think I read something... I thought you met his wife at film school, didn't he? I read something, and it might have been totally uh, just speculative nonsense, but basically said he studied English or something at university, but joined the filmmaking society and just kind oh. of learned on the fly doing like that. Right. Rather than a specific film... I mean, he may have then gone on to do some sort of film course, I don't know, but like he didn't go to film school as such. Or That's what you, I read you, anyway. I you are right, yeah. It says here, films, school's film society. I, I think I listened to like his Desert Island Discs or something like that, and, oh, yeah. and he, he said he met his wife on the set of a student film or something so yeah that, that must be yeah, what he was talking sense. about but that that does kind of make things all the more impressive when you look at this very early effort following that he made although having said that i think he was about 28 when he made this so presumably several years passed he's probably making short films and stuff it's obviously something he was getting into um because it is competently directed i think um considering it's obviously just a completely zero budget type affair. I, I I think it's a it's an extremely confident debut. Yeah, to say it's obviously incredibly low budget and reminiscent of uh, the likes of Clerks that we discussed uh, last time you were on the show, Bria. There's very little about this film that makes me think this is this. It doesn't feel like a student film or anything. Like yeah, it doesn't feel yeah. like someone's got five six grand. And you know, I enjoyed it. Everything worked mm. as a whole. It didn't. I don't maybe see directors as you two do, and I don't look into it as much. But I can see when something is badly directed. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and there's yeah. nothing about this jumps out as this is terrible. This is badly put together. For a first film, is amazing, really, when you think about it. Yeah, I I think it doesn't feel like a student production at all, but it it does feel like something that has been scraped together on nothing but you know has been done so incredibly well you know it, it feels like people who are working to their limitations and completely understand what those limitations are mm. yeah yeah i mean you've got very few characters but it's all shot pretty on the fly i understand they just sort of filmed it on weekends like because everyone had a day job i presume no one got paid because uh, the budget didn't have and budget money to actually pay the actual <laughs> film, just paying your film stock physical whatever, film yeah. itself was yeah yeah and I think but yeah I think you're right I think this looks although you look at this and you can tell it's just kind of a little bit thrown together by people with no money it looks like them it looks like more than it is if you know what I mean they've yeah. obviously yeah. done the best they could with what they've got and that's what you're yeah. looking for in terms of you know, first film by low budget filmmaker. You're looking. Can I give this person more money, and I'll, they'll do something with it? Yeah. The only real giveaway is the acting. 
uh, quality is just obviously that of we've done I think the best even we that, can with it's, yeah, it's not, it, it yeah. feels like they're getting the best out of unknown actors rather than yeah it, like yeah, it feels Provis like a great deal about the direction that he's getting so much out of them it's it doesn't feel like these people can't act. It, like Al said, it just feels like they're to their limits. This is probably the yeah, best they can yeah. ever do. Yeah, they're probably a bit yeah. more inexperienced, and and there's de- and they're probably working under difficult circumstances, as in you know shooting over several months or whatever, like one day at a time. But I think apart from there's a couple of moments where you go, ah, that wasn't particularly great acting. <laughs> but generally speaking, it holds up completely. And like these people, most of these actors that I could see haven't really done anything else. But no, they've all got following as like their top. Yeah, well, I wouldn't be surprised if I'd seen them on like the bill or whatever. You know, it's like yeah, that kind yeah, of yeah, yeah, working actors. Yeah, I mean, I I think the other the other big giveaway as well is just that this film is an incredibly sleek sixty nine minutes uh, yeah. long, um, which is so refreshing in this day and age. <laughs> yeah. Oh god, yeah. it's so nice just to have a nice sixty nine minute film. The the basic plot is that we follow a guy who's a bit of a kind of a weird guy, like a, a writer. He's lost in his own head a little bit in his fantasy world of he's just kind of following people around. Eventually follows the wrong person and this guy like says, what the hell are you doing? Why are you following me? They team up and this guy he's met teaches him how to be a burglar, I guess. <laughs> just in case there's any ambiguity there, like that's not a metaphorical following he's literally just walking around behind people shadowing them just to get a sense of how they live their lives and yeah he's got this kind of romantic idea of being a writer that he's he can he wants to study people yeah yeah exactly yeah but you're right it it very quickly descends into just oh let's burgle people <laughs> yeah <laughs> yes. so he, yeah yeah he kind of teams up with this very charismatic kind of gentleman thief <laughs> who who breaks into people's houses and, and does stuff and you know it, it doesn't exactly fly as realism but it's it's okay and then we kind of we delve further into this increasingly complex plot of kind of double crosses and intrigue of there's a femme fatale who, who wants him to do something for her, but then is it really about something else? And that's kind of the the one thing that jumped out to me as sort of, oh, this is classic Nolan right there from the beginning. It's kind of twisty-turny plot, but also told in a non-linear fashion. We, we yeah. do keep jumping the timelines, which in this particular case does seem to mostly just allow for the a sort of a big plot twist reveal to come nearer the end when chronologically it would have to come earlier. Um, it's kind of when we find out this the guy is working with the woman and, and all that sort of stuff. But it, it does work in terms, it just makes it a little bit more intriguing, a little bit more confusing. I don't think in this case it particularly needed it. I think you could tell this yeah, plot linearly and yeah. it would be fine. This is um, perhaps, yeah, you know, let's get into it now rather than Memento. The whole non-linear thing. I remember at film school, Alan, you you may remember, in a writing lecture, I remember us being given a script to read as a sort of homework, and we were going to dissect it in class. And it was about a kind of bank robbery, and a little kid, like, walking down the street outside or something with a toy car. Anyway, I, I, I hated it. (laughs) <laughs> um, and 
my main takeaway that like the thing was told completely non-linear, but it was just completely arbitrary. It was a really dull, uninteresting story that wouldn't be interesting in a linear capacity, and then they just told it out of order to try and artificially create some sense of yeah suspense or drama. And I I remember the writing teacher that we had basically saying, this is an excellent script. Uh, It's excellent because they tell it out of order and that makes it interesting and it wouldn't be otherwise. And I I was just sort of flabbergasted, like, well, that... That's bad, then, isn't it? Like yeah, you should only like, that's, yeah, yeah. It should like, add you... something because it adds something. Not yeah, it shouldn't be the main plot. Is that exactly, oh, yeah, it's out of order, so you're confused. <laughs> otherwise, you could just take. I mean, I keep using it. It's an easy example of, of a film to bash. But otherwise, you could just take Transformers and stick the last twenty minutes at the beginning, and you know, suddenly that's a well-written film. Is it? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know about that. I mean, I think. I think it's fine to mess with the structure and and play with it and and make your story more interesting through that, but you still need to have something there in the, in the first place. Yes, I'm not saying you can't do it. I I'm just saying that I think it is a crutch. You know, it is a gimmick, and it is generally speaking, it can be quite a cheap thing to do. And I I think that Christopher Nolan is largely very justified when he uses this technique in the the films he's telling have a thematic justification for it, which I suppose we'll get into in the subsequent films where he uses the same technique. Um, But I agree, it's not hugely justified here. It just makes something that would otherwise not be as interesting, a little bit more interesting. But it's quite a yeah a cheap way it, of doing it. It, it feel, Yeah, it does just feel like... But I, I, I think I, because of the nature of what the film is, it's a totally no-budget thing made by people who are kind of making their first film. I feel a bit more like, do you know what? You're forgiving. doing something quite ambitious yeah. there. Yeah. yeah, forgiving. And also, the fact that they pull it off just goes, okay, oh, yeah. That, yeah. that takes yeah. some talent. I do think it's a, an interesting enough story in its own right as well, and yeah, you know, it's like you say, it's a it's a low budget film, first time writer, but it's even if you did do it in a linear form, I still think it would be a, a reasonable film that they made, and it's just yes. adding something extra. It's not just that's not the be all and end all of the film. Yeah, 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 yeah. I agree. And uh, I mean, I will say, you know, from a just from a practical point of view, I think it's done quite nicely in the sense that. You know, we have these kind of different periods where we're jumping between, but like at one point he gets his hair cut and has a shave, yeah, another point he kind of gets beaten up, so he's all to, so yeah. he's all bruised. So it's like we immediately kind of go, okay, this is the timeline we're in. Um, that's quite nice. It's like and sliding doors, isn't it? She gets a haircut right at the start, so you know which, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which one you're watching. But that's uh, that's that's okay. That's a nice subtle way of just flagging it up without having to make it too uh, obvious. Yeah. Well, you know that I think that speaks to Christopher Nolan's style as a director. I I think he is first and foremost a technical director, if you know what I mean. I think he is a master of the logistics and <laughs> details like that when it comes to filmmaking. Yeah. Um that seems to be his strength. Uh and maybe he is not as good at characters and emotion and things like that um we'll get into i suppose a bit yes. later but 
uh, he is phenomenal at that kind of how is the audience going to read this? How is this going to be conveyed? Kind of detail. Yeah, you're right, and it, yeah, it's very plot driven things. Yeah, 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 character yeah. driven. Uh, and speaking of that, in, in following, I, I did notice like when we when we meet the the burglar, like one of the first things he's doing is basically kind of giving a philosophical justification of burglary it's like you know i you take something away from someone and they and then they'll learn how important it is to them or what's important to them it it did remind me of fight club actually because they do something similar in that like you know the project mayhem thing is a bit like that but you know when they go and they the guy at the convenience shop yeah he puts the gun to him and all that yeah it it reminded me of that it was the same kind of time it was 99 something like that it's um similar sort of period 98 it was yeah same year as fight club so I don't know if that was just sort of tapping into something. Like that. It does feel a bit wanky, I guess is the word I'm trying to. <laughs> I I did um, think that when I was watching it, like, oh, this if this was handled just a tiny bit worse, it could be the most insufferable bit of pretentious student mm. shit. But it's just yeah, done well yeah, enough yeah. that it works, and it, it does kind of bored it, with it. It pays off to an extent that the character that's doing those things does turn out to be basically a total shit, and also yeah, yeah, deliberately yeah, yeah. misleading this other guy. Absolutely. So it kind of works on that level, but but yeah, you're right. It is only like a hair's breadth away from being yeah, total bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's good. That's okay. They pulled. They fell on the right side of the line. That's fine. And I think it, for me, it worked quite well in the sense that this guy made absolutely no sense at all. In that he was clearly not short of money. He was stealing absolute shit from people's houses that wasn't worth anything to sell. That didn't make any sense at all. So how has he got money? My main question was, where was he getting actual money from? Which obviously towards the end of it was answered. It was just philosophical bullshit to reel this guy in. Who is a bit of a dreamer and a a writer and and will fall for that kind of bollocks. For me, it's not something he was trying to push. So it's nice. It kind of calls itself in its own bullshit, sort of, in a way. (laughs) It all comes round. It works. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there's definitely some Nolan features there, that kind of twisty, turny plot. Did you also notice the Batman uh, logo in the film? I did. It's under the door of the writer, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's on his like, <laughs> on his flat, on the door of his yeah. flat. Yeah. Strange uh, little... Quite a clever way to get a, a number of different scenes out of the same um, sets as well, sets, um, locations. Obviously, they burgle two houses that are also used for other things. It's yeah. like a nice way of just limiting... Everything on that budget. They only really go four places, I think, and three of them are used as both burglary scenes and then scenes for other things because of the way the story there was, works. There was one thing I noticed where they break into a house and they sort of smash the a window pane in the door and lock it. Yeah. And, you know, and they walk through and you can tell it's a real door real in a real house. And I did think, like, that's proper budget. Like, you've got to pay to replace that window now. <laughs> like, that's they're really committed to that because usually they just find the key under the mat. And then later on in the film, where it transpires that this is a sort of a fake burglary. The woman who was in on it, she was like, did you have to break the window? (laughs) (laughs) Can't have three keys in a row. That's what the producer said. (laughs) That was the the biggest expense on the budget, I guarantee it. (laughs) Broken window. So, uh, any other thoughts on following? I, we don't, I don't want to spend... We've got four films to get through, so let's not... Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm happy to, to move on. I think it's a really... Really nice, brisk little uh, mystery thriller. And, you know, I think there would be a a very strong argument to give this anything up to a 10 out of 10, honestly, in terms of what it achieves with what it's, you know, 
mm-hmm. clearly been given to work from judging it by the sta- you know by the standards of every other film in the world i'm going to give it a very solid 7 out of 10 yeah i basically concur with that i gave it a 7 out of 10 and and yeah i think you could easily judge it better just by virtue of they made a lot with a little but yeah it's a sturdy 7 yeah, well, for me, similar. I, it sort of feels like I'm judging it a little bit on the fact that it's how well they've done with what they had. Uh, for me, it's an eight. Maybe mm. I'm taking that into account yeah. a little bit. It's um, I enjoyed it throughout. It's the first time I've ever seen it. I watched it for this podcast, and I, you know, I enjoyed the concept of it. I liked it. I thought it was well done, and it's a, I think it's a solid film. It is, and it's and it's exactly the sort of film that you want to take to some producers or something. Go, look what I made with absolutely no money. Do you want to give me some money to make a film? Yeah. And it and like as a producer, if you're making low budget films, that's the sort of thing you go. Actually, this is very competent. Like this is a team I want to invest in. Yeah, and I guess that's what it did. I don't know exactly what the circumstances were where, where they took it. If they did a festival tour or whatever, but somewhere along the line, they got the money to make Memento, which in itself is a very low budget indie film that became. I was going to say it's a, you know a, a it's not hit. a huge amount of budget but again it's a film that does a hell of a lot more with the money <laughs> yeah they do they do a very good job of making more out of the ingredients than they have yeah turning water into yeah. wine essentially that, that's you know how big a deal is it that like it's a short story by his brother has his brother done much that had made any money or written anything big no i mean this 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 short story was I mean, not it was published after the film. It was not published. Yeah, so it was yeah. just like, oh, my brother wrote something. Oh, that's a nice idea. I'll I'll turn that into a script. That's about it, really. Because to get like a, a film, yeah, it is low budget still, but obviously much bigger than he was working with and following. And to get a, someone to back him on a short story that his brother's written that hasn't been published, it's. I mean, it seems like quite a big deal. It's quite a big jump up from what he'd made. Yeah, and not to mention. Christopher Nolan is British and some point ended up in America. <laughs> Not sure exactly how it happened. But I did read some, again, sort of vague thing I read that his brother was at university in America. So I don't know if they've, if that was just the reason or if they've got connections to their family or something. I don't know. His Wikipedia page says he's British-American, but I never looked into where the American okay. side comes from because he was born in London as far as I know and raised in London. So yeah, yeah, he's got a, an American parent, I don't know. But yeah, at some point he obviously teamed up with some producers and they gave him money to make Memento. And it's the sort of thing that I can see, you know, selling on the script. That's the sort of script that oh, someone will go, yeah. oh, hello, let's have a look at this. Yeah. As a, you know, that it's a script that gets attention. And, and it's a script that, you know, gets people to actually read it because the premise is so kind of, oh, I wonder how they're going to pull this off. If, if you're... If your little logline on the script when you're passing it around says, you know, this film is told in reverse order, mm-hmm. people are more likely to go, okay, wonder how they're going to pull that off. Or I bet they won't pull it off and then well, they'll exactly. read until it, they it, see evidence that they don't and they'll go, oh. It's something that could working. easily be done very badly. <laughs> yeah. So carrying on what I said before, I, I couldn't be asked rewatching these films um so i found loads of like weird wanky ways around doing it properly um <laughs> i watched memento re-edited into chronological order no, uh, that's on the as, dvd isn't it as preparation for this podcast yeah 
Uh, I also did that, actually. Yeah. <laughs> really? <laughs> Such geeks. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I have to say, going back to what I said before about telling stories out of chronological order, for anyone who doesn't know, Memento, Christopher Nolan's first big proper film, his, his second film as, as writer-director, uh, is told in... They say in reverse chronological order, that's not entirely true, because it, they'd all be... Yeah, it doesn't just play in rewind. It it kind of you'll get five minutes in chronological order, and then it'll cut to the previous five minutes, and then you know that it's it's done that way. Yeah. Um, Plus, it's broken up with chapter breaks of a kind of flashback video. Yeah, all the black and white stuff seems full chronological, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But going back to what I was saying before, it is remarkable how well this film works without that. Game. Really. It, it it I I thought it was going to break the film. I thought it was going to ruin it, but it was still a completely like compelling narrative, very easy to follow. It worked nearly as yeah. well. I would say. And the, I, in the fact, only... I I would say that it even it recontextualized things, and the the, yeah, the other yeah. character. In fact, all the characters, the main sort of three characters. You start to see them in a very different light, and and you see, yeah, yeah, yeah. You get a much greater sense of their character. Gro- not growth is not quite the right word, but you know, sort of scene to scene, like where is where you can go. Oh, they're definitely taking advantage of him there, or you know, yeah. I'm not sure. Is this guy trying to help him or not? And because you kind of know what's happening a bit more, it, it you really get a much better sense of character. I think it's definitely if you if you like Memento, it's definitely worth watching it the, right, the other way around absolutely. because. It really does give you a greater depth of it, and that's the that's the beauty of it. If you can take away that gimmick and still work, that's great stuff. That's good writing. Exactly, exactly. And um, so, for anyone who doesn't know, Memento, it's it's about a man who um, has a medical condition. It's a real condition um, where you can't lay down new uh, long term memories. But yeah, he, there's a point where he had an accident and he remembers everything in his life up until that point. But it seems that someone, John G, raped and murdered his wife. So he's on a, a revenge mission. Uh, it's very much a, a technical exercise, which I think is part of what really does it for me. I, I love problem solving in films of how he is able to function on a mission to to seek and get revenge on this man and obviously as the film plays out you you begin to learn that it's not quite as straightforward as it seems and you know there's a lot of twists and turns and i i think what the gimmick here does it really throws you into the same position as him in that you don't know what is going on you exactly don't... yeah Puts you in his mindset instantly. You, yeah, it's that. you you don't remember what's just happened. It's like you're you're figuring things out with him, mm-hmm. and so I think that's why it's a, a real stroke of genius here. And like we say, when you watch the film chronologically, it doesn't play that way, and you're not kind of watching it from his point of view anymore. You're kind of watching it in a well, yeah, something, a more... something that Al yeah. said about it building character which is something that he obviously can't do. It's not something he's capable of doing because he can't remember what they did to him an hour ago. So it is really good that it sort of takes you out of that. You're not able to see mm. whether these people are taken advantage or otherwise, and you, you're just like him, I suppose. And I, and I suppose that's it. By doing it in this l- non-linear fashion, they're able to kind of 
create the illusion of a character arc where there <laughs> arguably isn't one. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the beauty of it. He has this character arc at the beginning, but then he forgets it. That's the beauty yeah. of it. <laughs> so yeah. when you go when you go backwards, <laughs> and I mean at the beginning in terms of chronologically. So when you go backwards, yeah. that happens at the end. It's it's I, I like not to go too gushy over this. I, this might be one of the best scripts ever written, <laughs> like this, <Yeah>. because it <laughs> works so well. It works as a story, and then when you reverse it, it still works. It feels like something that has been written and then reversed rather than written as a thing yeah. because it and doesn't I, feel I, gimmicky. And I expect that's the case. I, I imagine they knew what they were going to do with it, but I imagine they wrote yeah. it out and planned it all out chronologically and then figured out how best to chop it up and then refined it around those yeah. breaks. But it's definitely it's definitely something where you, you like I said, I watched it the right the right way around, the, the chronological way as well. And I was expecting it's just like one scene someone does something and the next thing like, ah, you see they wouldn't do that actually, would they? Because if you watch it only works backwards. There's none of that. It all works. I'll, I'll tell you what there is a lot of is a lot of um, Guy Pierce repeating the same line he just said, <laughs> <laughs> like 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 an ad break on a sitcom yes, where yeah. they kind of just say the same line again to remind you what was happening. Um, but that's that's also because and and another trick they use really well is that they're not just showing this like ten minutes and then another and then then jump back ten minutes. They're each chapter is broken up with this black and white segment, so you know it's kind of different immediately, of him essentially just telling the story. It's an exposition dump, but it's broken up into about 10 chapters throughout the film, so it's slowly dripping in information, which works really nicely. It also breaks up the chapters of the narrative you're following so that mm. it doesn't feel, oh, and now we jump back, and now we jump back. It, it, yeah. it feels like you're just pushing in and out. It's it's very well. It's, it's a nice break as well from the reverse narrative. It's like just that second of oh, okay, I'm, I'm learning about this guy again. Uh, if I can push back against us, kind of being a bit gushy here, yeah, <laughs> uh, with a bit of a negative, I did feel that the film kind of said everything that needed to be said and was kind of done when I watched it in chronological order after the first half hour. Because the first half hour is all of that stuff in the hotel room, all of yeah. those little exposition dump moments, and it kind of contains the whole story within it. <laughs> um, yeah, and I I felt once we moved beyond that point, I didn't need anything else. All it gave us was his relationship with Natalie, and that I wasn't something I needed in the film. I was perfectly content just getting the story about Sammy Jankis, is it? Uh, Stephen Tobolowski's mm-hmm. character in Flashback, yeah, yeah. which was great. Getting the setup and payoff of Guy Pierce as Leonard and what led to him, you know, learning a bit about what he's doing and you get the, the twist with what's actually going on with Teddy. Yeah, I guess when we're saying you watch it in chronological order and it works. It does work, but it does feel like two stories. So the one where he goes up to where he's explaining his condition, and then you know we see him killing the drug dealer, and then the kind of twist where he decides that, do you know what? I'm going to do this again, sort of that's, thing. Um, and then, that's and then there's a significant point. Yeah, but then the, there's the second story, which is you know uh, the whole thing with Natalie and, and Teddy, and but that in itself is an engaging narrative. 
even if you know yeah, kind of what's coming at the end. I just think it's far less <laughs> compelling. I don't really care about the Natalie stuff. It always feels like the the baggy, weakest part of the film to me. And Teddy, I, I love and enjoy, but I get enough of him in that first half hour that mm-hmm. like you could have given this to me as a 35-minute, I think it is, film. And I'd think, wow, hats off, brilliant. Plus, you know, most of that story that you're talking about is... You know him sat in a hotel room talking on the phone to someone we don't hear, so it's it is just him telling a story. It's a total exposition monologue. So yeah, that just on its own perhaps wouldn't be as engaging. The fact that they've broken it well, up. Well, it's 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 that and the ending of the film. Basically, that I'm talking about. You get that. You get the bit with the yeah, drug yeah. dealer. You get the bit where the twists revealed. That's all I needed. There is something to be said that it's a lot stronger when you watch it as intended, edited oh, the way course. that it's meant to yeah, be. That's, that's but it, but you know, it's it's remarkable that it works as well as it does, told chronologically. Yeah. Shall we talk about the characters? Uh, well, yeah, yeah, and the actors. So we got the central character Leonard, played by Guy Pierce, and this was Guy Pierce. You know, obviously, he was a known entity at, at this point, but this was the film that kind of really made him like, oh, this guy could be a bankable star. Um, which hasn't quite paid off, but, you know. <laughs> it's by far and away the best bit of Guy Pierce I think I've seen, off the top mm-hmm. of my head, certainly. Yeah, I don't know if I'm that much of a Guy Pierce fan, to be honest, generally. I think he's fine. Yeah, but... I, I, I think he's often a bit, like, I don't know, bland, uninteresting? I don't have a problem with him, but here, yeah. he's a really charismatic, charming lead man. I've got to give it to him. He, he's great. But there is a certain sort of vacantness to the character because yeah, of yeah, the it's not a, it's it not a hugely trying role yeah. from an acting point of view. But I think he does a lot to make it as compelling to watch such a an empty <laughs> kind of character. Yeah, I do love his just general acceptance. Well, the character certainly is. Uh, he seems to pull off that acceptance of his condition really well. Like he's yeah. not angry about it. He's got revenge. You know, he's angry about other things, but his condition doesn't seem to be one of them. It's just for most of the film, he's like, "Yes, this is the condition. I'm, the condition I'm dealing with." The moment where he's um, they're in the chase scene, and it starts with just, "What am I doing?" While he's running. Oh god! And that delivery and that deadpan moment where he decides he's chasing the guy. Okay, so what am I doing? Oh, I'm chasing this guy. Chasing me. <laughs> when you watch that in chronological order, it becomes really funny. Really? <laughs> like, <laughs> more, more than it is normally. Because you are just watching him being chased by a Forgetting. guy. <laughs> and then going, what am I doing? Oh, I'm chasing someone. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, Guy Pierce, who, off the back of this, I was looking at his thing. He did um, the, the uh, Time Machine and... Uh, Counting Monte Cristo. So he had these two leads in period, both in period films for whatever reason. Like that seemed to be like this made him a, like I say, a lead man. And then since then, not so much. <laughs> but like obviously, regular. You know, he turns up in a lot of stuff. He's a regular. He works a lot of TV, doesn't he? Like quite a big TV. It's not like he's you know slumming. Yeah. It, I oh yeah, he's yeah. Still doing. Oh, he's never well. struggled for work. But yeah. it, it, he never quite crossed over into that kind no. of like the new Brad Pitt kind of category of. Um, just a bankable star. It's never quite paid off. But yeah, in the in the supporting cast, uh, the main the other main person in it, I think, is Joe Pantoliano as Teddy. Mm. 
Now, I mean, everyone's a fan of Joe Pantoliano, obviously. <laughs> yeah, this this was one issue I had with the film is that I know he's got it written on his photograph saying don't you know don't trust his lies or whatever, but he's just so likable that I just <laughs> sort of I'd want to like him and I'd oh, want really? to trust See, him. I think yeah. I think there's a real sinister yeah. edge to him in this film. Like superficially, he's so lovely and likable, but I think you do not trust him. You do feel like maybe there's something else going on here. And then yeah, the fact that they're ultimately... Fairness, but... Yeah, and there isn't really that much, you know, he's he's largely on... I mean, he's still using him to kill drug dealers. Yeah, that... yeah but he's, <laughs> you know, he's, he's, not... he's not like, you know, he, I think it would be fair to say he is Leonard's friend. Yeah, um, closer than anyone else, certainly. Yeah, and he's, you know, largely quite nice to him for the most part. I, I think I think you know it, it. It adds this air of tragedy, and when you watch it chronologically, it's all the sadder because you know exactly what's going on with him, and it is just very like, oh, yeah. <laughs> and I, yeah, and the, like it, it, th- that's again what comes along in the chronological telling is how much that comes across as in the ambiguity of him. Yeah, he doesn't seem like he's he's not a, the bad guy, but he'll definitely use Leonard for his own purposes. Yeah, but he, he feels like he wants to do right by Leonard as well. Yeah, it's usually just a little like jokey attempt to steal his car. <laughs> this isn't your car; it's my <laughs> car. You know. Yeah. And I'm still not sure, having watched it again and then watched it backwards, so to speak. I'm still not sure if he was actually a cop or not. <laughs> he definitely had a cop badge, and I think he, I think he was because he had access to stuff. Yeah, but I think he was. But there was a there was a brief moment where I was watching. And I was thinking, is Teddy imaginary? Is he just in Leonard's head? Yeah. Because, but actually, we only see him interact with anyone once, and that's the tattoo artist, where she sort of tells him to get out of the room. But I think that's the only time we actually see him directly talking to anyone else. Because I was like trying to figure out if that was going to come into play, or was like, is that a deliberately ambiguous thing that they put in to kind of maybe just one of many elements in this film that so is confusion because Leonard is confused yeah. but I don't think it plays off but I think the, the fact that there's such a small cast in this may just be a budgetary thing <laughs> but there are very few people in it really very few characters yeah, yeah. because uh, you know we've got Guy Pierce and Joe Pantano then the, the sort of the third main character is Carrie Ann Moss playing Natalie both these two just off the Matrix as well isn't it this is just after the Matrix yeah. Yeah. came out yeah yeah I did read something that Carrie Ann Moss recommended Joe Pantoliano uh, to, oh, right, the, okay. to the filmmakers, and they got they got him in for whatever. So she's the sort of third character, I suppose, and and this is one where you watch when you watch it chronologically, you realise just how little she actually is in it. Because when you're seeing her backwards, it's it's kind of like you see them together, and you go, oh, there's definitely some backstory here. There's definitely something going on here, and then it kind of like, oh, hang on, they've only just met. But you really don't get much of a handle on what she's doing, like how much she's really playing with him. Because, again, you do get the sense that she she cares about this guy. She doesn't really know him, but like she sees what he's going through and she's like feels bad for him and she empathizes with him. But then she's she does use him um, in a very overt way. She manipulates him. In a, in quite a cold and calculating way, which makes her come across as a real kind of nasty piece of work. Yeah, I think it's fair to say she's the villain of the film. 
Yeah, like in her in her mind as well. This guy's turned up in her boyfriend's car and she, wearing yeah, her boyfriend's clothes. Yeah, she she must at the very least suspect that he's killed her boyfriend yeah. because, because she didn't actually know for a fact yeah. he's dead. Yeah. But obviously something's happened. And you know the fact that she's going out with a, a drug dealer does imply that she's not perhaps the most moral character anyway. <laughs> but you do still get that ambiguity or the grayness, I guess, of that she obviously does care about him. She sees what this guy is dealing with, and and she empathizes. And even though she, even when she uses him, she then helps him. She does help him out by finding this license plate that he wants. Yeah, but she, you know, she also goes out of her way to. <laughs> not just use him, but to like you know really mess with him. Well, no, she's doing that for a reason though. She's trying to get this this guy off off her tail. And she's I like, mean, oh, I, I I sort of read it in a different way, and I, I know that it works both ways for her. She sort of saw it as well. If he gets rid of Dodd, brilliant. That saves me any shit. But also, if he gets killed by Dodd, brilliant. He's the guy who's fucked up yeah. my boyfriend. I want rid of both of them, either of them, whatever. So it's sort of like a win-win for her. I don't see her as really empathising with him at all, if I'm honest. There, There is a scene where she out and out mocks him, mocks the fact that his wife was raped and murdered, you know, calls him a retard, among other things, due to, you know, having a problem in his head. Says some really horrible things, and then sort of laughs at him because he won't remember it. Yeah, but how, mu- how much of that is, yeah, just she's being a nasty piece of work, but she, she's trying to get him to hit her. That's the whole point. Yeah. Chronologically, is the last scene with her when she hands over the envelope. Yeah. Because I mean, I can't, I can't really remember what she was like in that. She certainly starts out being quite against him, like she doesn't like him. But she does seem to mellow, if I remember that scene rightly. You know, by the end of it, she does seem quite nice to him. So maybe she does empathise. There is, so and there's a scene where she's sort of basically looking at all the tattoos on his chest, and she sort of basically she gets the story behind this. And there's definitely empathy there. And and like right. I say, I think when you watch this chronologically, you really do get these very grey characters of, you know, they do bad things, but they're not necessarily evil. Perhaps they are. You don't really know their motivations. And I think it would be difficult to kind of... I think you would need to cement that down a bit more if you were going to tell this chronologically, or you would feel like you needed to. But because yeah. it's backwards, the ambiguity really helps it, because obviously... The more vague you are, the less you're giving away in this backwards narrative in terms of, you know, you can set up a character that seems nice, but then the next scene they seem like a villain. You go, okay, what's going on? I think that's just all part of the the writing, but it creates these ambiguous characters, which by the very nature is more realistic. Um, That's why I I like, I really like that kind of thing. Yeah. I know we've already done Guy Pearce's character. And what are your feelings on Leonard and his sort of morality? I mean, there's the whole... You know, he's, he's out to kill someone, which puts question marks over him to start with, but you can maybe understand why. But then obviously oh, at the end of the yeah, actual yeah. film, but and the beginning of it chronologically, where he consciously says, right, I'm going to fool myself into thinking this guy who's just fucked with me, and I'm going to kill him. You know, that's a conscious decision. That is a, I am going to murder this person, even though he then forgets that he made the decision. You know, yeah, like, oh, he's, what, he's, a, he's a... You know, he's a nasty piece of work, and I think that's the twist, really. But, you know, you see that in his life before the accident, he was, uh, you know, professionally made loads and loads of money by figuring out ways to 
screw people out of medical insurance, <laughs> essentially. Being that numb person for business, though, and going, yeah, all right, I'll just murder him. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. It's, you know, it's and a that's it, you, you, you understand why he's doing it, you know? It's yeah. like, he's just looking out for his own well-being, but it's, you know, it's an incredibly selfish thing to just yeah. kill someone. <laughs> just... An innocent, uh, essentially innocent man for your own psychological well-being. I think it, I think there's really good character writing because that comes from someone who doesn't have to live with consequences. Yeah, uh, it's certainly emotionally speaking, he doesn't feel any guilt for that. How how often in the moment you go, God, I could kill that guy, and then <laughs> yeah. so you put something into action, and ten minutes later you've forgotten why. But it's like, well, this note says I have to kill him. So like, so, <laughs> and it's the same like. You see him hit this woman in the face, like because she's no threat to him. She's just sort of saying nasty things to him, and he's like, "Oh, I'm going to punch you in the face." Yeah. Like he could just walk away. She has no hold on him whatsoever. So you know, perhaps not the best guy in the world, but you do feel for him. There's so many times where you just feel like, "Well, that must be terrible." But I think that's part of the twist: is that oh, the guy we were rooting for is actually arguably the villain of the piece. But oh yeah, definitely yeah. Because yeah. that's in the in the in the way the film is told, that comes right at the end where you kind of find out. Yeah. Oh wow, he knew what he was doing and he did it anyway. Anyway, um, yeah, Memento, really, you know, triumphant look at me world film from a filmmaker being given the money to make a statement. Phenomenal achievement from a from a kind of technical point of view. Really, really well made, well acted. Difficult to fault, so I, I'm going to give it a 9 out of 10. See, I, I had slightly different effect when I watched it chronologically. It, it really cemented for me just how well-written it was and how well-crafted the performances were to, to make it work in the context Oh, same of... same here, you know, it, it, yeah. I think I'm probably just coming up to a 9 rather than <laughs> down. Which well, I think I went up to a 10. I gave it 10 out of 10. Wow. A rare occurrence. <laughs> you've you've both sort of gone above and beyond myself. Um, I, I mean, I really enjoyed it. This is on a second time I've watched it. I did enjoy it the second time as well, but weirdly, it didn't hold me like I felt that it should. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I found myself uninterested at times, and whether that's just because I'd seen it before and knew what was coming, yeah. um, which is I know people criticise that about this film a lot of times, which I think is unfair. But it did sort of lower me to it. I was probably at an 8 to 9 before, whereas I've ended up on a 7. Maybe you just, just lose something the more you watch it, because mm. for me anyway, as a as a casual film watcher, it's... I don't know, it lacked that impact the second time and probably brought it down for me. Okay, so we move on. Obviously, Memento was a, a, a massive hit, uh, especially relative to its kind of budget and expectations. It was a bit of a sleeper hit. And that got Christopher Nolan's foot in the uh, door of proper big studios. This this is the film I always forget that's in his filmography. I try and remember his <laughs> films is, off the top of my head. This is the least Chris Nolan film Chris Nolan's <laughs> ever made, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it well, we talk about Insomnia now, 2002 film, and it does it definitely feels the least Christopher Nolan film in terms of script. Yes, but it's it has got his kind of flourishes mm. to it in terms of mm. you know the way it's shot and it's it's a weird one because it's it's very very close to the original film that it's a remake of 
I mean, it's, it's, for anyone who doesn't know, Insomnia is uh, a remake of a is it Norwegian? Remake, yeah, I think yeah. So. Uh, yeah, Norwegian film from 1997. Uh, it's your typical kind of American English language remake of a film that's been proven successful internationally. I don't know. It's it's an odd one. He he kind of does find a way to arguably make it his own, but he doesn't go very far off book. You two, you two have both seen the original. What's what are the are there any main differences or I'm, is it? I'm annoyed with myself really because I I watched Insomnia, Christopher Nolan's film, probably over ten years ago now. And I couldn't be asked rewatching it for this. I just rewatched <laughs> the original uh, Norwegian film. Having watched that, I kind of did want to then watch Chris Nolan's yeah. version again, but I didn't have time before this recording to fit it in, unfortunately. Well, I I, I did watch, but I watched Insomnia as well, probably yeah, ten years ago, whenever. And I watched it again, watched the uh, Norwegian version pretty much straight after, like within half an hour, probably. Um, so I can give you quite a direct comparison, and it is interesting. The things, like just to be clear, Christopher Nolan did not write the script for the remake. It's written by someone called Hilary Seitz. Uh, however, I do understand that he had significant input. That's telling, I think, because there are some kind of Nolan-esque features here. The, the things, the main difference I would think of is they've tightened up and, and focus some of the motivations more which i think yeah. is is a benefit in, in the in the norwegian film it's kind of like well why are you doing that i don't know what, what like what's the point of that it, it feels a bit more vague it makes sense but with this it's like al pacino you know basically al pa- in insomnia uh, al pacino's character kills his partner accidentally but he does have motivation to kill this guy. So he starts, even in his own head, he's not sure if he's done it or not. And we as an audience never really know. Uh, did he do it on purpose? Was there some subconscious element that he knew what was happening? And it plays into the fact that he's not sleeping. Mm. And so he's just confused in general. Yeah, in yeah, in yeah, the Norwegian yeah. version, you don't have that. It's It was an accident. And then he's just trying to cover it up. So it's more about guilt right. of hiding from that yeah. rather than personal kind of emotional guilt. I would suggest watching the original Insomnia and comparing it to Chris Nolan's film for anyone who does make a real point of criticising Christopher Nolan's ability to handle character in his films. Because Mm. I I think this shows that he's actually far more capable of it than people often give him, than his critics often give him credit for. And it's perhaps that he's just less interested in that side of... You know what he's doing in his films, but you know the fact that the characters are so much stronger in his version of the film suggests a very clear understanding of what films need. I, them to I would work. also argue that in in the Norwegian version, the insomnia element, where the guy is just sort of slowly not sleeping and slowly barely, losing his mind, doesn't f- play very much, does it? Yeah, I completely agree. There's, you know, j- just to pick a scene that. Um, because it, it, I very much had the effect of being reminded of each scene in the remake as I was watching the original film. Like, oh yeah, this is the scene where this happens. Um, there's a scene where he is staying at this hotel. He asks the receptionist for some material to black out the windows. Because uh, for anyone who hasn't seen either film, they're, they're both set in parts of the world that have continuous daylight for 
six month stretches um at but a time. not blackout don't blinds have... apparently yeah yeah yeah, don't which is, yeah why would you not have a blackout <laughs> yeah so, especially in a hotel yeah yeah you know it's not like it's for people who live there and are used to it um yeah in 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 the original film stellan skarsgård is um the main guy who asks for these blackout blinds and puts them up and it's very much just a kind of like oh yeah uh, I guess he's not sleeping that well. Whereas, you know, in the remake, from what I remember, it's far more of a, oh, I'm I'm getting driven to madness and I'm mm. making it very clear. Oh, I really need, I'm, I'm going to do this to try and be able to sleep and it's clearly upsetting me. And it's just... Yeah, you're certainly reminded that he's not sleeping quite yeah, regularly, yeah. even if it's just Robin Williams' character saying, oh, it's been four days since you've slept. You know, there's always a constant reminder that he's not sleeping and yeah. getting gradually further down yeah. the rabbit hole. Plus, you do also just in terms of performance, Al Pacino's performance. Oh he's God. just he just looks tired and and like he's just yeah. out of his head all the time. It yeah. works really nicely, actually, and 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 obviously, it, you're telling it visually as well. the the way The way that Nolan shoots it is, you know, th- things are confusing, flashing lights, quick cuts. You know, a lot of that going on. That's yeah, that's yeah. that's where your direction comes in. You know, that's that's what yeah that is, yeah yeah. The editor Stellan Skarsgård's a great actor, but. You know, uh, there's. It's a very. It's not a role that really works as a big showcase for him. This film. Yeah, it's very cold performance, actually. It's yeah. Like a, whereas the character's very stoic and just doesn't give much away. Yeah. That's the idea. Whereas, for whatever reason, Al Pacino, fantastic performance. Like you know, one of one of the better performances from him in his latter years, I'd say. And you know, add into the mix Robin Williams again. Great, great performance from a great actor. I think there's, you know, something to be said that the acting in the remake is also a, a cut above what you get in the original film. You've also got Hillary's wank in there as well. Hey, I was going to set a timer for how long it would take for someone to say Hillary's wank. <laughs> Completely forgot. It, the original as well. There's, there's kind of a significant difference to the ending, which, in some ways, I prefer the original. So. What we what happens in mm. with the Al Pacino? It's not as big in the Al Pacino version. Yeah, it's a much more dramatic kind of closing. Well, but uh, before we explain the ending, I, I suppose just Let's for anyone who's listening who yeah. hasn't <laughs> yeah, watched fair. it, yeah. Um, <laughs> so uh, they they it's this cop who's brought out to this part of the world uh, to investigate uh, murder. Yeah. Where, where yeah. are they set? Um, it's it's in Alaska, Alaska, in it? the, yeah. Alaska in the remake, yeah. right? So this young this young girl is well young woman she's seventeen has been killed, and because it's yeah. quite an unusual, you know, not a crime of passion. It's obviously someone's murdered her and then cleaned her up and so it like mm. it, it they they kind of get the big cops in from L.A., but then there's also this this other thing going on that they've been sent up there because the internal affairs are sniffing around and they're like let's get these guys out of the out of the state <laughs> on some something that's uh get them out of the picture for a while. So there's this motivation like behind them. There's a little bit of backstory. And yeah, and then it's it's essentially just quite... Um, and this is the real weakness to the script. It, it's a very by-the-numbers kind of cop. Has to get into the mind of the killer and chase them kind of thing. Yeah, I hate... Well, not hate it. That first half hour is... Yeah. It's just yeah, you've seen uh, it all before. Yeah. That's the problem. Yeah, it's not done exactly. badly. It's just like, oh, I've, mm. I've seen... Yeah, this whole little big cop, I can spot things. I'm a super cop thing. Yeah. Just, yeah, really grates me. Uh, 
really struggled to get through that first half. And it's not done with enough character and and, no. and interesting new things to to sell it. Like Al Pacino, you know, he's a great actor, but I've seen Heat. You know, I, I've seen him do this before, and yeah, it, it's. Yeah, it just doesn't have and this enough wide-eyed there. new detective that's all loves yeah. him. Yeah. So then, uh, you know, in the course of investigating this, he accidentally kills someone and he's trying to hide it. And but the the real murderer has seen that, and so they they kind of blackmail each other. But it's it's kind of a little cat and mouse affair going on. And then, uh, how does that turn out? And the and the main guy very much struggling with his conscience um, because he's a good cop ultimately. But is he? You know what? What? Where does that line fall? It's it's an interesting character thing, and I just like I say, I think it's just a bit too by the numbers to really grab your attention. Yeah. But the one, so the one thing, so in the end, basically, what happens is the Al Pacino character gets killed uh, by catches the bad guy, but gets shot himself, and the yeah, the wide-eyed young cop who looks up to him. She realizes he's done something wrong, but she's going to hide it. And he says, like, no, you know, you've got to be be true, be a good cop and all that sort of thing. It's like a kind of a... He ultimately... That's when the sort of acts... character comes in, isn't it? It's that, you know, all the bad things he did, he did for a good reason, but then it sets him off down this path yeah, of doing yeah, bad yeah. things. And it, yeah. Yeah. And it's quite a nice thing, especially for a police character, policeman character. You know, there must be so many times where you have to do something like outside of the the rules <laughs> to make sure something happens or you see criminals getting away with things and all that. Mm. I think that's a nice uh, idea to play with. In the Norwegian film, the Stellan Skarsgård character, basically at the end, he just walks away. He's fine. But you really get this sense of that he has to live with some guilt and and he and he lives with this knowledge that he's done bad things but you also get much bigger sense throughout the film that he's quite a shitty person um yeah yeah like the the, the really obvious thing is um at one point he Al- shoots a dog yeah al pacino needs <laughs> to uh... <laughs> and he's already dead <laughs> well that's it, it when al pacino it right, but... when al pacino shoots the dog to get the bullet the dog is dead uh, Stellan yeah. Skarsgård shoots a, a perfectly healthy dog. To, oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. He goes into an alley <laughs> and he he goes into an alley with a bit of meat and goes <laughs> like here, boy. Oh no! The dog comes <laughs> over and then <laughs> yeah, that takes away that sort of um, that ambiguity. But of that is doesn't it? When that's the dogs. little differences they make to make this character much more yeah. sympathetic and and but that means you get this kind of moral ending and it works. It's fine, but I do like. I would have liked all that, but then him perhaps surviving at the end and having to live with guilt, and that would yeah. have been nice, I think. Mm. I, yeah, I, I think the original film, to me, I know this is a whole subgenre, uh, uh, Scandinavian crime dramas, and I'm not hugely well versed in it, but but the original Insomnia feels very much to me just generic, cut from that cloth. It's a Scandinavian crime procedural, you know, movie. And it's fine. It's very bleak and grey and drab. They are, you know, these are things that kind of go hand in hand with Christopher Nolan. Mm -hmm. uh, And what we know, Wally Pfister's cinematography tends to be very bleak and grey. So it's... it, 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 It speaks volumes, I think, just how much better... Um, Christopher Nolan's remake is like you kind of see the the subtlety about what he does 
because superficially it's kind of already there in the original film. But on a deeper level, you know, the cinematography is so much nicer and there's more artistry about it in the remake Mm. and it, it conveys more of a sense of this impending, dreary light that's, you know, driving this guy to feel a bit crazy and like we said there's more character and and just as simple as they they inject a bit of action into the film but it doesn't feel contrived you know that there's this whole set piece with a load of logs floating out on the water at the end yeah i really like that actually which is really great you know really well done very there's a real sense of uh stakes and like oh god this is this very seemingly mundane thing is actually really dangerous and these guys mm. could die uh, where they're, you know, fucking about on logs floating in the water. But then obviously if they go under the logs, they, they're going to have a much harder time breathing coming up to the surface. And that's not in the original film at all, for yeah, example. Like that. I mean, I guess what I'm saying is it's it's the incredibly rare example of a, an English language remake of a foreign film that builds on and improves upon the original and I would say is significantly better. I think the only time we've ever discussed such a a thing on this show before was when we spoke about Ringu and the Ring. Mm-hmm. And even then I think I think I still preferred the original, but you and Calvin were on the side of the remake. Mm-hmm. But yeah, here I think the remake is a better film, so um I give the original Insomnia a, a seven out of ten but the remake I would give an 8. That's interesting. I My main problem with Nolan's Insomnia was just like, yeah, I've seen it all before. I was not engaged really at all. And I think by when I watched the Norwegian version, I was perhaps a bit more sympathetic to that. And it felt, it, it, because perhaps there isn't as much going on, it felt a bit more character-driven, like this sort of central character. Mm. That was a bit more interesting. It felt like watching... A TV thing. I think. I guess that's just a budgetary thing yeah. as well as anything else. But like, it felt like watching an episode of Cracker or something. That's not a bad thing. <laughs> but I think I just I slightly view it on a different level. You, I watch Nolan's Insomnia and I think this is a a Hollywood production. I'm watching a film here, and I, I kind of expect something more. I think, and I get more. But I think you know my scale is slightly different. Anyway, the point is, I gave them both six. I I did find it fairly disappointing. I think. I think it's a I think it's a masterfully directed film. Oh, I think there's definitely stuff where you go, "Oh, I'm interested in the director here." Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean I I haven't seen the original, so there's no comparison as far as I'm concerned, but I gave this a 6 as well. Mm. Um which feels a bit harsh because I did find it actually really watchable. I didn't feel distracted. I was, yeah. you know, engaged in it. But it did remind me like I said of sort of this run of the mill detective doing yeah their detective shit and i've seen it all before it's done better than most of the ones that i've seen that are similar so yeah i gave it a six as well whereas other stuff like this i would probably be unwatchable to me whereas this was which pulls it up to a, a watchable six <laughs> right and i mean i think that's it for christopher nolan's shaky beginnings i mean not shaky but you know is is <laughs> Is transitional early days into and is, superstar. It, it, it is really the classic, director. the classic template. You know, you got total like no budget, just calling card film, indie hit that gets you noticed by the studios, 
solid studio film just to prove that you can work in the system and you kind of do what you told me you need to. Right, here's a franchise. <laughs> and it yeah. is. But obviously, throughout that period, proving himself again and again and showing that he has quite a distinct visual style, um, not necessarily an auteur way, but like he'll make something work um, for what he wants to do with it. And I think more that kind of... There is a kind of darkness, a grittiness to what he's done. I, I, yeah, well, I, I would say he's very much an author. Yeah, I mean, he's known for gritty. You know, he, he's the guy who put the post nine eleven spin on superhero movies, isn't he? He's the guy who added that what people kind of roll their eyes about now—the idea of a dark, gritty superhero movie. I mean, that was his invention. But um, before we get into that, I mean. You know I keep lots of stupid lists, right? Mm-hmm. Well, one of my stupidest film lists that I keep is a list of all the directors. It's like my top 100 directors, uh, where I rate all of the films that I've seen out of 10 and then give them like an average score based on how much I love their work. Oh, nice. How many, how many films by a director do you have to see to, to gain entry onto this list? Because you can't, obviously can't just have, oh, I've seen one film by them and it was great. I think I work with a minimum of three, which I think gives a, a solid um, mm-hmm. entry point. Okay, but you know, in the case of Christopher Nolan, I've seen his entire filmography uh, once over at least, and and we're in the process now of rewatching it all for this. Yeah, Christopher Nolan is currently at number ten, which is pretty Ooh. pretty impressive. I That's think pretty good. But, it's not that I high. mean, for context sake, number nine is Trey Parker, the, the man behind <laughs> South Park. So. <laughs> so what have you got? Who else is up there? Robert Zemeckis? Oh, no, I don't. Uh, Robert Zemeckis is um, number 38. Oh, Do you want the top 10? Up and down, I guess. I'm going to say they've got to be consistently really good, surely. Yeah, I mean, bear in mind, the problem with this way of doing things is some of these directors... You've only seen their best films. Yeah, I've only seen three of their films, and you know, yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you right now, Shane Meadows is number eight, and that's one of those where it's like I've seen three of his films. I really like two of them. <laughs> I'm fairly confident if I went and watched all of them, he'd drop right down. <laughs> <laughs> Who else? Spielberg. Spielberg's got to be up there, right? I was going to say Spielberg's made so many films that surely something's going to bring they're him all, down. They're all quality. Uh, Spielberg is number sixty-four on my list. Wow. Craziness! Absolute craziness! <laughs> Why is that craziness? Do bear in mind he's made War Horse. He's made you know, the BFG. <laughs> this is the flaw in this system, though. He's made Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. This is an yeah, average. It's not a. a yeah, a you have one highlights. One hit, one uh, failure, and it drags you down. Yeah. That's the joy of it. Edgar Wright. I think Edgar Wright was number one, and then you know he's been bringing that average down ever ever since he. Uh, um, well, Sam Raimi. Ever since Hot Fuzz, I think the average has been coming down. Um, Sam Raimi is number nineteen, Ooh, and he is shocker. someone I would say is my favorite working director. So you know, <laughs> it's, it's obviously not a perfect <laughs> system, but I've seen all but one <laughs> of his films, Sam Raimi. Oh, so that's see, quite an accurate. Yeah. Well. I'm trying to think of someone who would have only done like, or you'd only seen three films of that are all really good that would I mean, put anyone in the top ten. Shall I keep, right, well, I've given you number nine, Trey Parker, number eight, Shane Meadows. Number seven is someone you're not going to get, because they've only made three films, directed three films. Uh, Martin McDonough, the guy who did oh, In right. yeah, Seven yeah, yeah. Psychopaths, Three yeah. Billboards. Yeah. So, you know. Number six, 
Alfred Hitchcock. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> how many... F- the- Hitchcock's done some real shit, so how yeah, many Yeah, well, this is it. I've only seen, seen the good stuff that, you know, I've not properly dug into it. I've seen 12 of Hitchcock's films. <laughs> He's done pretty well. That's then. not bad, though. Yeah, not bad. Yeah. But, but those are, like, the 12 classics, you know? I haven't seen... <sighs> Topaz or oh, uh, Family. Aren't you like a big? Are you a big Tarantino fan? Are they? Is um, he in there? He, I mean, he is. Right, so okay. I guess I guess I am a big Tarantino fan. Yeah, he's number four. Right. Okay. I give his films an average rating of eight out of ten. If you're Blimey. interested in it. What about Tim Burton? He must have dragged that down recently. Uh, he has completely tanked his place on this list. Yeah, <laughs> Tim Burton is sixty-three. <laughs> Just next to Spielberg was that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just next to Spielberg. <laughs> Go on, who else then? Uh, number five. This is one that you, you perhaps should have guessed because he hasn't made many films and they are to a pretty high standard. James Cameron. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah fair enough. Yeah, yeah. Uh, number three is Edgar Wright. Again, not many films there. I have a feeling that score's gonna come down with time. Uh, number two, Charlie Chaplin. <laughs> okay. Right. Okay. I've I've seen just I'd say about half of his directorial efforts, and you know they're all to a very good standard. Number one, and uh, I think this is a very respectable answer here. So I, I feel like Alan's going to laugh no matter what I say. But <laughs> this, is, this is a really solid choice, actually. Oh. I mean, it's not the it's a choice. Sidney Lumet or Lumet? Is it oh Lumet? yeah, I can't. Yeah, I can't argue with that actually. Yeah, especially if you've. Seen the, the 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 ones he's renowned for, yeah. The ones. Well, this is it. Down. I've I've only seen you know the classics, and mm-hmm. uh, they're pretty good. Yeah, I can't argue with that actually. Yeah. Uh, anyway, that was a tangent. <laughs> it was. It was. <laughs> so let's uh, jump in to Batman Begins. They obviously entrusted Christopher Nolan with essentially a reboot of this franchise. Which is hard to it's hard to put into context of two thousand five now. It's a different time, isn't it? Superheroes world. Yeah, there was only really Spider Man that was doing anything at the time, wasn't there? That was out. X Men as well, well yeah. yeah. X Men, yeah, sorry. You know, Batman was a pre established huge franchise, mm-hmm. but kind of from the eighties and the nineties, you know, he's not really basically in two thousand and five or two thousand and three or four, whenever this went into production. Giving this guy Batman wasn't quite the huge entrustment that, you know, I think it would be now. They were obviously a lot more willing to give it to an auteur and let them put their stamp on it. And to be fair, that's kind of what they did with Tim Burton. They they really let Burton do his own thing with Batman as well, and it worked for them. It's easy now to think, oh, Chris Nolan, they gave him this huge IP and it was this big deal. But I think it was, you know, relatively speaking, still quite a small project. But, you know, to to give Christopher Nolan credit, you know, he, he took this thing and it's a very confident bit of world building. It's mm. um, it, it, it almost plays like the Elseworlds uh, comic books you get, which are these kind of non-canon... Imagine if Batman was a ninja kind of storyline. Yeah. And it, it, <laughs> it, it almost played like, imagine if Batman, but real, in the real world. And it's it's kind of weird that it's it's almost become the definitive version of Batman now and what we think of when we think of Batman. But yeah, I mean, I have to say, I, I think he 
it's difficult to overstate what a revolution this film was and how much Christopher Nolan kind of did to shape where we're currently at in mm. Hollywood as well, for better or for worse. <laughs> you know, the, 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 the scene, this film ends with a sequence oh, the little, Joker. The little card, and, yeah. Yeah, and the, the only difference between that and what we get in films to this day is that it takes place just before the credits start instead of 30 seconds into yeah. the credits. Yeah. We, we've spoken about Batman Begins on this podcast before. Yeah. It's probably worth mentioning. We, we did a we whole Batman, Batman, the world of Batman, yeah. Yeah, back in 2016, I think that will have been. Yeah, and that'll be the last time I watched this film. Long, Same here, Long yeah, enough ago that I wanted to watch it again and, and get a fresh perspective on it. Well, I, I didn't want to watch it again, so instead I, I watched uh, Adam West's <laughs> Batman the movie. <laughs> that's, that's not true, that's a joke. I, yeah. I did rewatch Batman Begins, but, um, <laughs> but I didn't really want to, and... I've got to give it credit. It really did win me over. It was like, oh god, I've got to put this on again, have I? And you know, I, I think when we spoke about this film last time round, I f- I remember being a bit down on it because my memory is I'd rewatched it for the podcast then, and it hadn't really lived up to my memory of it. Um, and I think I bumped it down to a seven out of ten. Then I've got our ratings here. Calvin gave it an eight out of ten, and you gave it a seven out of ten, Alan. But I mean, it, it, I kind of saw what I used to see in it, rewatching it. It, it. It's, I think, it's a really quite remarkable bit of work, even if it's not necessarily playing to the kinds of things that I personally like on a subjective level. Mm. My my problems with it, I think, it suffers from sort of paradoxically, it does suffer from. First of all, it requires prior knowledge. It kind of assumes. You know, kind of what Batman is uh, and who he is. I don't think that's true at all. I, I, I disagree with that. Well, as well yeah, I completely disagree with that. I, I well, if um, you let me finish my sentence, I, <laughs> basically, I was going <laughs> to say, I will do no such thing. Paradoxically, it also it feels like there's a lot of giving backstory, but I don't know somehow. And I know, like, like I say, it is paradoxical. I don't know quite why it makes sense. It feels like the first half an hour is just backstory, and like uh, we've seen it all before, but then it still feels like we're not establishing the character so much as the backstory. And so it feels like, that's what I think I, fe- I mean when I say it feels like there's assumed knowledge there. I'm not explaining that very well, am I? <laughs> I, I, I? I think that's just Christopher Nolan's way of telling a story. He's not as interested in the characters. Yeah, I, I came to this in 2005 or six, whenever I came around to watching it, with very little knowledge of Batman, really. I, I don't know if I'd even seen Tim Burton's films at that point. If I had, I'd barely really paid attention to them. Batman was not a character I was particularly interested in or familiar uh, with. And, you know, it makes perfect sense. And, and it set up this character and what I know of him now, it, it, it tells that story without any real knowledge of what came before it, I think. And if you have that deeper contextual knowledge it will perhaps enhance your viewing but i don't think it's necessary at all yeah i thought it was quite a nice mix of sort of like two origins at once like you know the Mm. the childhood story was obviously mixed in with the whole climbing the mountain and the training and all of that lot and yeah 
we're getting back to uh, non-linear storytelling with yeah. this one, and, and that is right there the justification for it. It yeah, allows you to it, have these two concurrent nicely. stories. And also, you know, the child story could argue most people know. Weirdly, my girlfriend was in the room when I was watching the beginning of this, and she was like, oh god, do they, they tell the origin story every time? Yes. And I asked her which time she'd seen it, and she was in the Tim Burton one, which is the only Batman film she's aware of. And I was like, well, yeah, they have to do it every time, because mm-hmm. you haven't seen it previous to the Tim Burton one. So they have to put something in to give some kind of knowledge for anyone that is new. Yeah, and to be fair... It is called Batman Begins, which yeah. does imply, <laughs> right, this is the origin story movie. Yeah. Tim Burton's film, from what I remember of it, largely skims over the origin. It's more of a flashback, isn't it, that's kind of chucked in there. The whereas, Yeah, I, I think this film at the time, from what I remember, was very much sold to audiences as they're doing a prequel, they're doing a Batman prequel. Because uh, it was kind of before people had got used to the idea of reboots. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's justified in being a Batman origin. I mean, story yeah, in terms of yeah, being a Batman, I like it. You, you see him going from this sort of angry young man to a, the bat, the Batman, right? And I think that works. My main problem with it, in terms of the structure and stuff, is like that first twenty to thirty minutes just feels like a, le- a series of montages. That is true. That is, yeah, I think, yeah, I agree yeah, the pacing's I, a bit off. I think yeah. that's what I mean when it, I say prior knowledge. It's like you're just thrown in with this character. You don't really establish the character, and it's it feel it feels like that that this is okay. I've figured out what I was trying to say earlier. The first twenty five minutes, yes, it is a story that's setting up a character, but it feels like it's setting up a character with you already knowing what we're where we're going with it. Like as in, you know that character that you know. Here's where he comes from. Whereas it's not. If you just watch this cold from the beginning, it's just like, who's this kid? If you've no idea what the Batman is. Yeah, I suppose there's no real there's no real explanation of Bruce Wayne, I suppose, for itself. But at the same time, for a film like this, there is sort of an implied knowledge, mostly worldwide. Yeah, because there I, is. Exactly. It is there. You can't ignore that people have that knowledge on the exactly. most part. I, I think there is a point where it's okay to assume knowledge. You know, Batman is one of the most... It's like if you told a, a if you made a movie about Jesus Christ, you're going to assume some degree of knowledge about what Jesus Christ is. And I, so you're saying Batman's like Jesus? Well, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's particularly <laughs> to save us. absurd to compare people's knowledge of Batman with people's knowledge of Jesus in but, this day and age. I but think also, how how much of his character do you need? I, yeah, I know exactly. that you sort of, like, I'm not criticising your love of films the where people sit down and talk for two hours necessarily, <laughs> but you are mostly about the character in yeah. a plot, whereas, you know, Batman is essentially out for revenge and then yeah. it leads to him wanting to save his city. You don't need to know, like, about his first girlfriend and yeah. uh, we do find out about his first girlfriend, unfortunately, in Batman Begins. In the many Batman stories i've read or or seen you know cartoons and things like batman's never interesting the only time (laughs) i've ever found him compelling was batman beyond when they aged him up to be about 90 and suddenly he's this grizzled hardened clint eastwood-esque guy who can't be batman like he used to and he's trying to train up a protege and suddenly he's an interesting character because it's a completely different character but you know other than that he's a bland cipher really um <laughs> who exists to tell stories with the villains and and i think he's 
about as good a take on that character as you'll find in a film in this film. I mean, like, like I say, I actually find the character really engaging and I liked the the arc of him because at first I was like thinking, you know, this, like the, and the, all the Liam Neeson bit where he's training and it was like, uh, sort of increasingly as it goes along, like, this this guy's a total dickhead. Like this really sort of fascist <laughs> yeah, mentality, yeah. macho dickheadness. But like obviously that's so that he can rebel against it and kind of come yeah. to a, a, a greater truth of justice rather than vengeance. And I really liked that. I liked that character. I liked that. I, I I didn't like him at the beginning. I thought he was a dickhead. And then it's kind of like okay, we see where he's going. You understand why it's coming from. The whole bit with the the girl who has an influence on him and all that—it's. I thought it all worked nicely. Rajal Ghul's such an odd character in Batman lore. In the again, I don't think he's ever been interesting ever. <laughs> I think every time he used to turn up in Batman the Animated Series, it was like, oh, for God's sake, it's a Rajal Ghul episode. <laughs> and I don't think I've I've never seen him be remotely worth the time of day anywhere. So it's an odd thing that they're so committed to the character because I, I i might be wrong but i don't think he's a particularly popular character with fans either maybe it's just you know maybe i don't like rajal ghul because it's liam neeson and and he's you know crap. we've documented my issues <laughs> with liam neeson on this podcast yeah. um and i think this is the first time i can say this after having watched schindler's list which was kind of i always used to give him the benefit of the doubt because i hadn't seen schindler's <laughs> list maybe he was good once but i've seen schindler's list great film he gets away with it in the film i don't think his performance is particularly noteworthy I just think Liam Neeson's a terrible, terrible actor. And, mm. and you know, again, credit to Christopher Nolan. I, I think this is one of the performances where he kind of gets away with being a terrible actor. They kind of make the film around him. But yeah, I think this film does have very little emotion in the characters. Like, yes. And I, that I, comes across I, yeah. with Liam Neeson, but that suits him. Killian Murphy just Absolutely. plays everything quite cold. I think he's brilliant in this. That's really like him anyway, but I think yeah. he's particularly good in this. But that's it. If you can make that work, I, I think, if anything, mm. Michael Caine is the one who kind of holds the emotional Oh, uh, he's the beating yeah. heart of this yeah. film, 100%. Yeah, And they play up to that a bit more in the later films, don't they? But in this one, it's it's all quite quite cold. and Yeah. Gary Oldman as uh, Jim Gordon, mm-hmm. I think, is the other, the other bit of warmth in yeah. there. And... Um, I was thinking about this watching it again earlier. That I mean, it, phenomenal casting, great. He he's my favourite Gordon we've had, which is saying something because J.K. Simmons, who's one of my <laughs> yeah. all-time favourite <laughs> actors, has played the role. But it works so well here. You know, he, he's great in this film. He brings a lot to a very small role. Speaking really. of a small role, this is only a couple of years after Tiptoes, so obviously it was at the peak <laughs> of his career. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> one one other sort of small detail that was annoying me was just how much is like, can we really hammer home how much of a fucking great guy Thomas Wayne was? Like every single oh, thing he yeah. did was perfect, and by the way, yeah, he was every, fucking yeah. perfect, and he gave all his money to the poor people. It's like the only thing that seems to bother Bruce Wayne either, you know, like when he's slagged off about his dad, he's like that seems to really hurt him when <laughs> people say he's not like his dad and. <sighs> But it's just like, I think you just have to really over-egg it because 
you know, at the end of the day, he was a billionaire CEO of, like, a multinational... Yeah. Like, obviously, he wasn't a nice guy. Obviously, he was a total arsehole, because that's the, the, that's the only... That's the job well, You can become that rich. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> so they have to go, oh, no, he's one of the nice ones. I mean, he still lived in a mansion with, like, servants and stuff, but he was really down to earth. Well, because he goes on the public transport when he goes to opera with his 10-year-old child. He really loves opera. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> that wound me up. <laughs> Who else is in this film? We've got Katie we've got Holmes. Katie is Holmes, who's a bit Joffrey shit. from's in it. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. I was trying to figure out where I recognise him from. Yeah. <laughs> Katie Katie Holmes doesn't make it into the next one. No, I was going to ask this actually. It's um, she's replaced. It, it, she's often slagged off in this, and you know, and she's replaced, and people say she's terrible in it, and I, I do agree. But I also think the character terribly written, like she's oh, just really? an awful character, weak, weak like, character. Yeah, you could get anyone to play that part, and she would be awful regardless. <laughs> And like even you know, getting ahead of next week here, but even in the Dark Knight, that's true. She she is just a badly written, uninteresting character. Yeah, I can't say I had any particular problem with her acting, and it's a no. fairly vapid role. And she's but it serves a purpose just to at best, I would say. Yeah. But there's a few moments where it's like, oh, that's not great acting there. Oh, I can't say I was had any problem with her. But I I think this is the start of something that we may be talking about as we continue Christopher Nolan's career. I'm interested to see how well Christopher Nolan writes women, because I've got a hunch that on the rewatch here, it might just be an issue of he's not great at female characters. <laughs> yeah. He, he, yeah, I mean, he does, he does make, I guess, masculine films, whatever that means. It, it does feel like films that are... Well, yeah, cold and emotionless Yeah, films. I guess yeah. that's what it comes down to, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> the one time he tried to make an overtly emotional film, uh, which was Interstellar, it, it, it pissed off a lot of people too. So, yeah, <laughs> I wouldn't expect that to um, change. Yeah, which is obviously just how he approaches things. I think that's okay as a place for that. Yeah, it's fine. It's not as he does it know, well. Not everyone has to make a soppy, saccharine bit of emotion every time. It's fine. It's a place for cold, hard films with very bleak <laughs> stories. <laughs> fine. Yeah. Uh, we we've not mentioned we we also have uh, Morgan Freeman in here. Oh yeah. Oh Fox. yeah. He's really good in this. I like um, the Lucius Fox character. They're obviously building a franchise here, but they don't make too much of him. I thought they could make they could have made more yeah. of him, and I'm I'm kind of yeah. happy with that because you've got enough going on, and you've got Alfred for the emotional side. Lucius doesn't have that at first, at least you know. He's the tech guy essentially, and he's Q. He's Q, yeah. yeah, yeah. But he works really nicely, and he brings a bit of humor. He's a bit of a yep. cheeky chappy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And Morgan Freeman's got that twinkle in his eye that just sells everything. I want to know more about how he ended up there and what trouble he caused, and you know, yeah. I quite like that in a character. That That's something we should probably mention, actually. Another thing Christopher Nolan is often criticised for is a lack of humour, and I think that's true here, that there's some moments of uh, attempted humour in this film. Yeah, some real misfires. Very weak, <laughs> very bad <laughs> jokes in this film. Like, real first draft placeholder quips <laughs> that <laughs> somehow made it into the finished production like when uh when gordon sees the batmobile 
and the oh, lights. I've got to get me one of those. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh. it, this particularly <laughs> struck me in the Batmobile chase sequence, where it just felt really dated. But I think it was because oh, it I kept agree. intercutting I, yeah. to a policeman going, He is in a vehicle. Make it color. Uh, it's a black tank. He's not on the streets. He's jumping across the ceiling. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. They they also had uh, a wonderful bit that I, I enjoyed, and I, I'm not criticising this, but where the... Uh, is it security guard? He's he's like drinking a cup of coffee, and then the Batmobile goes flying past, and then he like looks at the coffee like, "Hey, <laughs> good old what's double in take. this drink?" <laughs> <laughs> Which, uh, as as, as listeners will know, I'm a big fan of that exact joke, and I think yeah. it should be in every film. <laughs> I liked the bit where he turned the lights off, and everyone lost him, even including the helicopter <laughs> with a spotlight oh, yeah. on it. Yeah, what the fuck? literally <laughs> just turns the headlights off and they're like, oh, it's yeah. disappeared, what's going on? Oh, Ghost oh, car! He even, says, he even says, go into stealth mode and then just turns the headlight off. <laughs> like, yeah. like, like, none of the film is particularly realistic, but it's based within mostly realism, and then that just ruins everything. Uh, uh, but, I, I mean, I must say, that there's some weak stuff in there from a filmmaking point of view as well. That there's a there's a bit where it cuts to obviously um, Rajal Ghul's his, his evil plan is to use this microwave weapon that vaporizes water, mm. um, and then it just cuts to like a character that I don't think we've established at this point in like the water plant HQ, who just says like. If this water here meets critical mass like it is doing now, then it's gonna blow up the entire city. And then it just yeah, cuts away again. Two it's guys like, in who there, was that? There? There's like an <laughs> old guy and a young guy, and the young guy is the guy from following. He's the main guy from following, isn't he? Was it? <laughs> yeah. He goes, Oh my god, the pressure's spiking. And I was like, Oh god, that's a terrible London accent. What's going on? And looked him up and it's the guy from following. Makes sense. But you know, all, all little weak rough round the edges things aside and you know i'm willing to chalk a degree of those up to teething problems with the the superhero genre finding its feet all of that aside i think you know what a vision here to to bring gotham to life in such a vivid way you know it, it's chicago isn't it that they yeah this in, I believe. it does look it, spectacular especially yeah, the narrows it just, it's got a really yeah, good feel yeah. to it it's and it's you know it, it, gotham is typically it's really more of a New York analogy, as far as I know. Isn't yeah. it? Oh no, that's or is that yeah. Metropolis? Am I? No, that's, well, I always saw. I know they're both in the DC, but I always see um, Gotham as New York. Certainly, yeah. the dark side of New York, rather than the tourist. Yeah, it's eighties New York, glitzy yeah. side of New York. Yeah, yeah, and it's so to kind of not think, hey, we're going to film it in New York. It's you know, it's quite visionary. Then that's what Christopher Nolan is, you know. I guess he knows what he's going for and knows how to get it. And this is a great example of it. It's a you know visually uh, really strong film. The the cinematography, the visual style that they've kind of been developing him and and Wally Fister over the course of their careers is is really coming into its own now. And you know it's very professionally put together yeah. <laughs> uh, action sequences. Uh, it's, it's a really triumphant leap into proper blockbuster filmmaking territory, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I like I say, when we did this film back in the day, I gave it a 7 out of 10, and, and I 
I'd like to bump that back up to an eight, which is what I used to have mm-hmm. it as. I, I think it's very respectable bit of work. I mean, I, I'm I I stayed on a seven. Um, definitely, it was and it, the usual sort of pitfalls as far as I'm concerned. Half an hour too long, like twenty minute too too much of a car chase, and it's just I appreciate yeah. there's a sense of personal taste there, and that whole opening section uh, was I, too I, loose. I, and yeah. basically, it's it's just, a bit. It was baggy. fine. Yeah, I agree. Seven out of ten. Yeah, there's definitely issues with it for me. I think the length is actually quite reasonable when you bear in mind that they've got a full story and sort of a, a partial origin. Mm-hmm. But I do think it sets up nicely for the later films. I definitely think that was a, a thought process. Yeah. Um, but it's yeah, it's an eight for me. There's definitely issues with it. It's not a perfect film by any stretch, but yeah, a really really good, well put together film. I think uh, it did a lot, and I think it, like we said at the beginning, it's sort of ushered in a huge amount of change within cinema and certainly superhero films. Mm. So it's, uh, yeah, eight. Nice. And, uh, yeah, that eight that I've given that film there uh, has an impact on my directorial photography oh, really? <laughs> ranking list. <laughs> oh, yeah. Christopher Nolan, he was he was number ten. He's now up to number seven. Ooh. Wow. Didn't take much. Pushed him up. He has, he has an yeah. average score. Of eight out of ten, it used to be seven point nine, but that that Batman Begins score has pushed it up to an eight. Mm-hmm. So there you go. How's that going to break down for the the That's following week? It's obviously going to be <laughs> quite positive. So next week we are going to be continuing this. We we've structured this around the Batman trilogy, the Dark Knight trilogy, just because each one seems to as things stand, kind of be part of a a separate third of Chris Nolan's career. Uh, I think Batman Begins is very much the end of the beginning of his career, Mm -hmm. and The Dark Knight is very much the confident middle portion. So next week we'll be doing that with The Prestige, The Dark Knight, and Inception. Yep. Okay. Join us next week for more Christopher Nolan discussion. Thank you, Bria, for helping us out this week. Thank you you ever so much. It's good to speak to you both. Uh, So, come back next week. Bye.